Hello, 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 and welcome this week to the Hashtag 5 Things podcast. We are back from Labor Day. Unfortunately, summer is over, but we are here. I've got Juliana here. I've got Tommy here. We are ready to rock. This week, we're going to dive into five things going on in the world of social media. Juliana, hello. Tommy, hello. Hi, Joey. I'm happy that you're having a marvelous day. I'm having a good one, too. Good. I'm so glad. We've got so much to talk about. Uh, First up, TikTok has surpassed YouTube in the U.S. for average watch time. Uh, Next up, um, App Annie released their report on the evolution of the social of social media apps, which is uh, really really awesome. Um, Twitter launched Super Follows, a creator monetization uh, tool. Twitter launched Communities to rival Facebook groups, and lastly, the internet is shedding a tear because they are reacting to a nostalgic Blue's Clues video celebrating 25 years of the show, which I can't believe. But we're going to break it all down. Tommy, Juliana, let's dive right in. Juliana, start us off with TikTok. Yeah, no, this is uh, probably more exciting news to the executives at YouTube and TikTok than I would say the average individual, but still beneficial from an advertising and marketing perspective. Users on TikTok now spend more time each month watching content on TikTok than they do YouTube. So the uh, stats right now are really only focused on the U.S. and the U.K., but from what we've seen in the U.S., TikTok has overtaken YouTube as the top uh, app. In August last year, uh, it was shown that users watched over 24 hours of content per month on the app compared to users on YouTube watching only 22 hours and like 40 minutes on the app. So not that much of a spread as far as, you know, uh, an hour and 20 minutes is concerned. But in the UK, we're seeing a much bigger difference where users are watching 26 hours of content per month on TikTok compared to less than 16 hours on YouTube. So we're seeing that TikTok is completely blowing YouTube out of the water in the UK. What is important to note, though, is that this data does only include Android users. It doesn't include iOS. It also doesn't include TikTok viewership in China. So those are two pretty major numbers that could sway the pendulum basically in either direction. In the grand scheme of things, uh, TikTok has only been around for about five years, while YouTube has been, you know, spending four years trying to strategize how they're going to move their viewership from 100 million viewers to a billion. Still, it's pretty exciting just looking at the fact that TikTok has managed to rise pretty tremendously over the past couple of years, especially because of how new of an app it is, and looking at the fact that YouTube had been strategizing for maybe about four years or so, trying to think of how it could move its viewership from 100 million hours of content being viewed to a billion hours. So the fact that YouTube had to do so with you know, long-form content, with users being, uh, or rather content creators being rewarded for creating pieces of content that are you know, 10 plus minutes long, that TikTok is able to surpass this app that's had you know, years in the game with videos that are at max three minutes. So it's pretty exciting to see as far as competition is concerned. And I think we'll only continue uh, the trend we've seen of basically every app trying to model itself out of TikTok and kind of gracefully steal what TikTok is bringing to the table. So pretty interesting. And I think it'll also have some major implications for where advertisers are spending their money. So we'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Yeah, no, I was going to ask, knowing, you know, TikTok and YouTube ads just are so different in content and style. does this? Do you think this data or this release of information changes anything for brands? Does it? Do, would you be rethinking anything 
Tommy or Juliana? Yeah, I think like, obviously, you know, pass it to you, Tommy. I realize this is kind of more your, your purview. But what I think is interesting, of course, is the fact that on YouTube, you see a lot more kind of explainer type of advertisement. Um, you know, these like can be 10, 20 minute long pieces of ads, um, you know, whether it's mid-roll, pre-roll or, or post-roll. And it's kind of optional if the user wants to engage with it. But you do have the opportunity to say, make something unskippable. So at the very least, you kind of have a captive audience taking in your content. But that's not the same on TikTok. You know, at your luckiest, you're the ad that comes up when someone first opens the app, where maybe three seconds or so, uh, the person has to, you know, view, uh, view it before they're able to, to move along to the rest of their experience. But given that you won't have kind of this like guaranteed opportunity to force someone to view the entirety of the piece, I think it will have a lot of implications on the type of ads that marketers are making. And also if that ends up being probably the more lucrative space to get eyes, will that be where they're favoring putting their money towards just kind of uh, drowning out the TikTok app versus putting things on YouTube? Yeah, I agree. Also, hi everyone. I think that this actually is a rather important piece of information, this report about the viewership habits, because I think it has, um, I think it's an indicator over the strength of short form content. YouTube as a platform prioritizes long form content. They pay creators more to make videos longer than 10 minutes. And that's how they structure the website. They want to keep you in the app. They have their algorithm. So you stay on the website. And TikTok, through sheer strength of will of their algorithm, keeps you on it for bite-sized bits. I think ads have to follow. People will tune out of unskippable five-minute explainer ads, I think. That's the way our kind of brains are being wired. And so I think if we start seeing more organic stuff that brands are already doing on TikTok and start seeing ways to utilize both TikTok's capabilities and YouTube short, I think, is going to get a lot of more attention in the future. It already is. They're funneling money into it like crazy. But I think even more so after this, this realization of the strength of short-form content, we're going to see ads reflect that and try to be really attention-grabbing. Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great um, point there. I think the, the YouTube shorts will be... Um, I, I'm interested to see where that ends up. Um, speaking of this data, this data came from actually our second thing, uh, the app Annie releasing their report about the evolution of social media apps. So Tommy, why don't you, let's, let's broaden out a little bit and get away just from TikTok and YouTube and talk bigger about this report and um, the implications and what the data uh, revealed. Yeah, let's, as Amanda would say, let's do a zoom out. We love a zoom out here on five things. And so for those of you who don't know, App Annie is an analytics platform that really analyzes social media data and it puts out reports about trends and demographics and things like this report it published about the evolution of social media usage and how trends have evolved over the last few years. And it had three really key findings that we want to highlight or that I'll highlight for you all. The first being what we talked about earlier, TikTok overtaking YouTube and average watch time. And... The other two big ones were the fact that there is a really major rise in in-app purchasing. Spend in in-app purchasing reached $3.2 billion in the first half of 2021 alone, which is up 50% year over year from 2020. Second, there is also a real growth in live streaming. 
Social apps that have an emphasis on live streaming are set to have a three-year compound annual growth rate of 25% compared to just 15% of growth rate for apps that are focused on chatting, photos, and videos. So I think these are pretty, you know, sizable findings from this report, and it gives us a great insight and glimpse into how people use these apps. And with this knowledge, we can better tailor our content, better connect with users, and better, you know, do our job as people who internet for a living. Yeah, I, I hope that everybody listening uh, does get a chance to check out this report. I think there's a lot of great things to, to find as you dig into the data. Um, was there anything for either of you, was there anything in this report that actually surprised you that like you didn't expect to hear? The thing is, it's like, it's always a bummer when these uh, reports come out because I am such a curmudgeon about adopting new preferences <laughs> and, and different ways the technology behaves. So for the fact that in-app purchasing, which I think kind of seemed, at least from my world in the corner of skeptics that are throwing peanuts at the performers on stage, our point of view is that it seemed like something that where, you know, you can definitely understand like online shopping, but for someone to be kind of like showing off their outfit in a Instagram live, for example, and someone to be like, oh, you know, this is I'm ready to make the purchase right now to be so quickly moved through the purchase funnel. It's just absolutely astounding to me. And really what I think that these reports always indicate is the fact that there really is no shame in trying out like the new way the technology is behaving, the new options that are available through different apps. And the fact that, you know, there really isn't anything to lose about seeing if your content or the way that your uh, business behaves can augment to include, or at the very least, you know, not actively reject um, the the new processes that are kind of being rolled out there. You know, people seem to have a fiendish desire to participate in what's new. And even if it is, you know, a fad, which me and the peanut throwers were really hoping, um, it, it still is something that, you know, has like obvious, at the very least, you know, three, five year projected growth opportunities for business. Yeah. Um, any other any other closing thoughts on that? Because I know this was a big report and a lot to dive into. Tommy? I agree. Now I'm thinking TikTok's adding in-app purchasing. And now I'm wondering what the effects would have been if Rush TikTok had in-app purchasing. You know, those Bama girls and their apps of the days. It'd be a real, be a real mover shaker. I think also similar to me, I am I have friends who are very much into Twitch and live stream. I don't really get it. I do on some level, but I don't get the like the hunger for it that people have. And this reports me as another reminder that this is the next wave of how we're going to approach connecting and communicating online. It's the next kind of, you know, ways that humans will interact. And I think it's just a reminder that I can't ignore something I don't understand. I have to adapt. Otherwise, it's going to get left behind. Yeah. Um Okay, so from big data dump to Twitter, um, Juliana, talk to us about Twitter launching super follows. Definitely. I will say, Tommy, Amanda will be very disappointed to hear that you do not understand Twitch, our resident video game uh, savant. So to talk about Twitter, uh, they are launching super follows. It's something that's been talked about a little bit in the past, and I think we even touched upon it within this podcast, but it's this new creator monetization option that they're beginning to roll out. 
And effectively, the way that Superfollows works is that it's a feature that allows users to charge for subscriber-only content. So a creator can set their tweets to only go out to a super follower, you know, either all tweets or you know, select ones, and those tweets will only appear in the timelines of those subscribers. And so you super follow uh, follower users can charge $2.99, $4.99, or $9.99 a month to be able to kind of get this unique and exclusive communication. Uh, right now, it's only available on iOS, so you know, stay tuned, Android users. And it's also only available to a select group of users that have 10,000 followers, are at least 18 years old. They've tweeted 25 times in the last 30 days. They're in the U.S., so right now it's a lot of red tape. But if it is something that you know people embrace, I think we're going to see that it will you know become something usable by anyone on Twitter. And it's really just a matter of if it's worth it to you monetarily uh, to create the sort of a tiered exposure to the content that you're putting out on Twitter. And now this is something that is very intriguing to me um, from on one end, I think it's a very interesting kind of showcase of the way that Twitter continues to try to identify ways to monetize its platform. And I think that because Twitter is kind of doing it in a retrofitted manner, you see some of the most innovative things from Twitter, whether or not they actually stick is a different question, but I do think that Twitter is a great space to watch for different monetization techniques. But then also where I think is a little intriguing is as far as the way that Twitter operates, you know, being kind of this space where every individual can participate in this live conversation and that we're all able to see it and take part in it, you know, excluding those who've been blocked by various accounts. This is kind of a not an antithesis, but sort of a pivot from the way that Twitter is operating to now create this ability to have a echo chamber almost effectively right underneath your nose, where we all think that we're looking at, you know, the same picture, but someone's getting secret messages from the picture that you're not being able to see. And I think it'll be very interesting specifically for the communities like journalists and individuals whose job it is to report what's going on in the world, if they'll end up having to effectively pay representatives or people who they don't necessarily agree with uh, in order to have access to them, just to be able to ensure that they're able to share information with the public. So it would just be very intriguing, especially when I think of how in the previous administration, um, you know, Trump, the, the federal federal courts determined that Trump couldn't block critics from Twitter because, you know, it's important that that type of information be shared with the public. You know, what will this mean if they're just, you're not able to afford to understand what is going on in the world? So very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how it works for internet personalities specifically and those kind of Twitter personalities. But um, yeah, your guys' thoughts? Yeah, that's a really great, I had to consider the actual cost associated with having to keep up with knowledge. It's a really interesting idea. Um, I think from my perspective, I may not get Twitch like Amanda, you know, the savant, but I get Twitter. I adore that app, the, that hell site bird app that we all, you know, love and hate. And I think it's interesting seeing how Twitter just kind of throws everything against the wall and sees what sticks. I mean, we had Fleet's RIP. We have their uh, sort of Substack subscriber newsletter option. And now there's this, and I feel like Twitter is positioning itself, maybe intentionally, maybe again, just the kind of grab bag method, as a place where you can kind of have a, a one-stop shop, where as a creator, you can have a newsletter to hone your brand and connect with your subscribers or your followers, rather. And you have a place where you can gain money from both, you know, obviously brand deals, influencing, 
but also from having your followers actually pay you. They're taking over parts of Patreon in this way. So it's interesting seeing how this app takes and chooses bits of other dominant platforms and kind of makes it their own. So I think for me, I'm interested in seeing how will personalities and people on this app use it and maybe just take, like have Twitter be their place to roost, you know, use the bird metaphor for the bird app. So I'm interested in seeing the ways that Twitter really gets users and then has them stay as opposed to has them as opposed to having them go off to Patreon or Substack. Now they can do it all in one nice little platform. I think it's interesting that when Facebook um, rolls out their new features that feel like other apps, we're very quick to point a finger. But when when Twitter does it, and we'll talk about this in the next thing with uh, communities, it's it, it's interesting to me that Twitter feels like when they're doing it, they do it in a way that feels right. And it it feels like it makes sense for the users, not just app or um, not just uh, new features for new features sake. So, um, so yeah, so Tommy, why don't you tell us a little bit about Twitter launching communities and let's, let's talk, let's dive into that. Yeah. Twitter's having a week friends. Uh, they just announced that they were launching a communities feature, which is basically, I'll call it a pretty direct rival to Facebook groups and also to Reddit as just a website. Basically, communities are a place where users can form around a certain subject, and then it is moderated and created by users who then invite users to the group. So it will be a group by and for people who have interest in the subject. Like I think one of the ones that Twitter announced already was dogs, another was soup, I'm not making this up. So it's a place for people to connect in a way that's different from what Twitter normally offers because Twitter, as of now, is a place to just sort of shoot your ideas off into the void. And whoever sees it, sees it. And there's a kind of fun in that and you get some weird alchemy and some rather like just amazing interactions that normally wouldn't happen in a Reddit or a Facebook where you're specifically in groups. But there's also you know a fear and a kind of unpredictability that comes from that. And so I think that these communities will be a place to attract people who maybe wanted to use the app, but were afraid of the unpredictability and of the idea of throwing your thoughts out into the void. And it gives them a funnel and it gives them, I think most importantly, a context in which they can all approach something. I think Twitter as a whole suffers. I think its biggest flaw is this lack of context. People don't know where people are coming from when they see their tweets on your timeline. And so I think by connecting people under this guiding basis of whatever community that you're in, we're going to see a lot more maybe healthy discussion, healthy posting, and more organic, reasonable connection happen the way that it's currently you know, happening in the wild, wild west that Twitter is right now. Yeah. And I think also, you know, when you think about the stat of what 10% of Twitter users send out 80% of the tweets, I think there's something to be said about, you know, yes, there is the value of Twitter of you kind of just being able to spout into nothingness, my personal passion, but, you know, people do want engagement. I think in any social media app, you want to feel as though there's someone you're talking to or someone who's liking your posts or just any of the kind of, you know, traditional elements of social media that can kind of be lost on Twitter, where you kind of have to strike it lucky that enough people think that you're entertaining, an amalgamation of complete strangers think that you're entertaining. 
But by creating these communities, I think you can then incentivize people to tweet more and be on Twitter more if they're actually being able to have conversations with other, other people, which again, I think is your, if you're looking at you know, Twitter's longstanding question besides the how do we make money from Twitter question, it's also a how do we get more people on Twitter? You know, it can kind of feel as though the entire world is on there just if you're on there 24-7 like myself, but a pretty small segment of the population is using Twitter. So I think that by making it somewhere where everyone can kind of talk, it ends up being a little bit more like a Tumblr. And that way you can see there being uh, an incentive for people to want to engage a lot more constantly. So again, Joey, it's like you're saying, I, I don't know why I endlessly tip my hat if it happens on Twitter versus if it happens on Zuckerberg's internet, but I'm very interested in seeing how this works. My other question is, how do I get into the dog group? Because I would really, I would really love Make that. connections network. You know, you have to work for it. It doesn't just yeah. come to you. Yeah. Speaking of dogs, uh, particularly amazing tangent. Thank Beautiful. You. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so the internet went crazy this week uh, because a Blues Clues video came out starring Steve, the original Blues Clues friend, uh, celebrating their 25th anniversary. There's so much to unpack here. Juliana, talk us through it. <laughs> I would be honored to do so. Uh, as someone who was raised on Blue's Clues, but is actively paying rent and has medical bills and student loans, you would think this wouldn't be as important to me as it ended up being, but it really was. Um, you know, you've probably heard of it by now if you're in the world of marketing uh, because you own a laptop. But in honor of Blue's Clues' 25th anniversary, Steve Burns, the original host of Blue's Clues, the OG, uh, <laughs> decided to talk about his decision to kind of just abruptly depart the show back in 2002. Um, so, you know, for the children who recall it, the, those 90 babies who recall it, you know, one day in the early 2000s, Steve kind of just packed up his things and said farewell to all of us, let us know that he was going to be handing the, uh, the rings over to his brother and that he would be seeing us when he sees us. <laughs> and it was very, you know, interesting. And I think at the time when many of the viewers were children in this kind of pre-social media time, there was no ability to kind of elevate the feelings that each six-year-old had about their own unique understanding of what it meant to be abandoned and to lose a friend and that the sensation was being felt on a grander scale and not just kind of something that they were going to toil with alone for the rest of their days. And so in this video, Steve was just very straightforward in letting us know that he apparently went off to college uh, when he decided to leave the show. But what was also very interesting was the fact that he decided to speak to the fact that, you know, he was very proud of the children that, you know, watched him and also recognizing that, you know, the skills that he gained when he was on Blue's Clues were valuable and have benefited his life as he continues to grow and that he hopes the same for all of us. So this is completely unexpected. I don't think anyone in my age group, older, younger, was exactly, you know, writing down on their wish list that Steve Burns would show up on the scene and, you know, give them a shout out. But in less than 24 hours, this video had been viewed nearly 20 million times. You had everyone from, you know, random Joe Schmo to insert celebrity here just responding with crying Twitter emojis and gifts about, you know, Steve is proud of me. Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. 
And talking about the fact that this managed to really kind of transform them um, back to the time when they were a child and striking this perfect tone of speaking to kind of the realities of adulthood, um, you know, that we're going through a lot right now. And these accomplishments, while good, are also, you know, have their difficulties. But is still speaking to us in a way that really struck that tone that we all had when we were children. And this is something that I have now at this point, I believe, watched four times. And what I find just so interesting about this video and the way that people responded to it is that right now, a lot of the conversations that we have as that basically anyone can be an influencer, micro, macro, is that this idea of an influencer owing their audience anything is you know, hotly debated, but you do have a lot of people saying that an influencer doesn't really owe anyone anything. And I can agree that's true. You're your own person, you know, independent of the relationship with your viewers. But there's definitely something to be said about the role that our idols and moreover, our children's idols can play in their lives. You know, you have the, these people talking about how Steve kind of coming forth and speaking about what happened when he left the show gave them a sense of closure. And that it really sort of build this wound that they didn't even recognize was left open when they were kids. And so parasocial relationships, which as evidenced by their name, are kind of given flack and seen as this sort of exclusively negative thing and a fault of the viewer because they aren't able to create distance. It doesn't recognize the benefit for children or for people who perhaps don't think that they have anyone else that supports them or knows them as well it's very beautiful to me that they can find comfort in someone else. And so I think it's really just important to remember as influencers continue to be a part of people's lives that there are individuals watching you and they aren't, you know, rooting for your downfall if you if they feel kind of harmed when you, uh, you know, behave in certain ways. Perhaps it's just a recognition of the importance you play in their lives. Wow. Um, Tommy, what, what were your thoughts on that? That was really beautiful. And now I'm yeah. trying to think of how to follow that up. Um, I know. Because <laughs> my I'm first speechless. thought, my, I know my first thought from the video was I didn't realize that Steve leaving had such like a hold on y'all. I didn't realize it was a generation wide <laughs> psychic wound because I grew up with Joe. I grew up with his brother, my new, our new best friend. Which I was going to ask. I was going to ask believe, if you grew up with Steve or not. I didn't want I'm to. But, so I okay. came with, I guess, uh, cognizance with media, like, I guess the time he left. So yeah, because so, when I first saw this, it was pretty early on. I had like a million views. I'm like, oh, this is really sweet. I know like this is a meme about Steve leaving. And it currently, I just checked, has 35 million views. I have never seen a video be this big on Twitter in my life. I cannot remember one, even like political videos. I, this is insane to me. We recognize the power that nostalgia has over people. We, a trailer for the Matrix remix, uh, the new Matrix, the fourth one, just dropped today. And we remember like the cycles, the 20-year, 30-year cycle, how we love vintage things. But I think it's like your point, when you have a real deep connection with a mentor, because he was a, a mentor and a, not father figure, but a friendly um, adult figure to children, it has a hold on you. And I think this is really just a bizarre, wonderful case study in the way that some things really impact people in ways that we were not expecting. Like the fact that we're discussing Blue's Clues, a show that I have not thought about prior to this week in a decade or so. It really goes to show how much it, this is just, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm speechless, honestly. This gets me so like excited and like emotional about just how insane this is. So I think my biggest takeaway is that people have stronger connections to things than you might recognize or remember. And you can't predict this. I'm sure Nickelodeon did not predict this at all. And we might get a reboot of Blue's Clues coming up down the pipeline because of how big this is. But I think it's something to just maybe be ready for, or if when it happens, just buckle up and enjoy the the love they're all getting. Yeah, it took me it took me to a place of, you know, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Mr. Rogers, which mm-hmm. I I think I, I grew up more with Mr. Rogers than uh, than Blue's Clues, but um, but yeah, it kind of it kind of felt like that. We it, it it's just like that nice that that is sort of in the world right now that we need more of right like we it's it, it it almost feels like why ted lasso is so popular right now right it's this it's this yearning for just having like things that i mean there's no other word other than just nice like it's it's wholesome it's it's nostalgic it's um it just makes you feel good inside um yeah yeah i think culture is at a place now where we're tired of just kind of abject apathy. Um, I think you see this reflected in TV like Ted Lasso. You see it reflected in music. You have more dance heavy hits like Levitating or those songs like popping on the radio. I think we're at a place now where we're tired of apathy. We're tired of, you know, pretending things don't matter. They don't care. I think we're going to see a lot more media like this in the future, for better or for worse, that really embrace sincerity and embrace honesty and emotional openness. And I think this and Ted Lasso, because there's a lot of Ted Lasso discourse happening right now, are at the crest of this movement of sorts. Yeah. Practice radical niceness and see where it gets you. Please, we need it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, I endorse that. Okay, friends, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, I, I mean, I'm excited for everything going on this week. Um, can't wait to to engage with some of these new things on Twitter and watch more of these uh, Blue's Clues videos. But um, Juliana, thank you for joining me today. Always a pleasure. Tommy, thank you for joining us again. You did great. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, Okay, so that is it for us. Please, it would be super if you would follow us on Apple and Spotify. (laughs) Um, And feel free to email us at podcast at gray.com. We will field all of your questions. Um, And, you know, have a great, have a great week. Bye. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.